Uh, we turn, um, as Stephen has said, um, to the, the final chapters of Amos. Um, and if you've been here the last two weeks, uh, you would know that Amos, that's largely been, it's so far been a message of judgment and of wrath and of preparing for the day. To an extent, that continues the last two chapters. But at the end, Amos ends on a note of, of hope unexpectedly. So we want to weigh these things together um, and to consider seriously the message that Amos gave to the people in his time and gave to us. So let us uh, come to the Lord in prayer as we um, then come to his word. Heavenly Father, we know that you have spoken by your prophets, that we should hear you, hear your will. And Father, we thank you that we can know um, all that you wish us to, to know, that the things that we um, need to do and the ways we need to respond uh, to you. And Lord, we just thank you that it reveals your, your precious and your gracious love to us, even in uh, the darkest and the hardest of times. And so, Lord, please help us to um, engage with you now by your spirit. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, there is a great advantage in knowing what is to come. I mean, for instance, the, the weather forecast. Uh, it is good to know what the, the weather may be the, the next day, to know what you might want to wear or if you want to go outside or have an event. Uh, and indeed, in a much more kind of serious way, meteorology is really remarkable and important in predicting hazardous kind of natural disasters. So cyclones and flooding and bushfires. Um, what a great thing that we have systems to detect when those things may be uh, coming our way to help people prepare in the moment. Or perhaps you may be someone who is good at predicting the economic forecast, you know, knowing where the market is going. And so then you know whether it's a good idea to invest in things or not, or what to invest in, or if it's a good idea to be uh, taking out a mortgage or seeking a new job or not. We currently have the, uh, the NRL uh, tipping competition for staff members going on. I'm not involved, but most of the other staff are. But I like to watch and observe. Uh, and uh, the defending champion, Stephen Liggins, is currently in second place, one, point, one game behind Justine Jenner. And um, so in his case, what a great advantage would come from knowing who would win. Um, we'll see. Uh, and Amos challenges us today as we think about what is to come. He, he spoke to people in his time, showing them what would come in the immediate future. But he also speaks to us to consider that what will come must shape who we are and how we live today. That there are words that we need to heed with great seriousness. I think often it's these unexplored bits of the Bible that can be a bit of a jolt to the system. And it can sometimes challenge us, perhaps, in ways we're taking things for granted or when we're getting complacent. So I'm really glad we are in Amos. And I think um, Amos does that in today's passage in, in a number of ways. So let's see what God has laid out in the days before us and before Israel. Well, firstly, if you've got your outline there, we're going to be going through the, the three kind of chapters. Firstly, we see the judgment that must come. And we had read out for us two great and terrifying judgments that do not 
fall on Israel. Amos, in these chapters, experiences a number of visions. Uh, and the first two visions he sees are, uh, are disasters, natural calamities that God is preparing to unleash upon the people. The first, a swarm of locusts, a horde of locusts to come down to eat not just all the crops, but all the vegetation in the land. In that day, you can't just go to Coles to get your food. You're relying, well, as we still all do, rely on the, on the farms. But if all that is gone, well, there's going to be a mass starvation event. And so Amos intercedes for the people. Sovereign Lord, I beg you, how can Jacob, another name for Israel, survive? He is so small. The nation is too small. You do this and you will destroy it completely. And God, we see, what does he do? He relents. Then there's a picture of fire, fire coming down on the deep and on the land and destroying everything on it. Nothing lasts. And Amos says the same thing and God relents. We think, well, why does God show Amos these calamities? I mean, God knows that Amos will pray out and intercede for the people and then God will relent. Amos is appealing on the basis that Israel is weak and insignificant. And if you do this, they'll be destroyed. So please have mercy. And God relents. But there's a third vision. Uh, one that perhaps doesn't look as intimidating as the others, but in fact is more devastating by far with the news. Uh, uh, Amos shows, sorry, God shows Amos a, a wall and a plumb line, which is an instrument to measure and test whether a wall is straight or crooked. And what God is doing there is showing his measuring, his measuring stick for Israel, that he has a righteous judgment. He has a standard that is clear, that is fair, and he's showing how, it, how they line up to it. God's judgment is not a matter of uncontrolled rage, of flying off the handle, smiting people because he's in a foul mood. No, God has examined his people, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks. He's examined his people, how they've lived according to his law. He's seen their lives in full. He's seen the way they contradict who he's called them to be. He's seen their lack of repentance in spite of the urgent messages of his prophets. Right? To use kind of American TV legal drama terminology, it's a slam, like it's a slam dunk case. They are guilty as sin. And he's going to say, I will spare them no longer. Amos doesn't say anything to this. He can't argue with it. It's clear that they are guilty and God's judgment is going to come down upon them. And so God will bring Israel down and particularly their places of pride and their places of power and their places of false worship, as we see in verse 9. The high places where there was pagan worship, the sanctuaries which they thought that they could use to kind of please God, even though he hadn't called them to build them. The house of Jeroboam, the king who had been leading Israel in all the wrong directions. God said, I'm going to bring this down. And what we see is that this is, this is entirely fair and justified. God is, God is right to do this. Amos sees it. Likewise, when we see God's standard, his holy, righteous standard, his measurement against us. I mean, Paul, the apostle, can only say, no one is righteous. No, not even 
one. And God is, in many ways, inflexible when it comes to evil. And that is a good thing. God cannot let evil go. And so we actually need an intercessor, a better one than Amos. Amos was a good intercessor, but he was not the one, the perfect intercessor. We need a better intercessor to appeal on our behalf. I mean, and I think that's why God is setting up this interaction for us to see that need. And that's what we have in the Lord Jesus, isn't it? A perfect high priest, an intercessor who advocates for us. And he does that not on the basis of, well, God, you know, these people, they're not actually, you know, they're not so bad. They're okay, right? Jesus doesn't advocate for us on the basis, well, you know, they had a hard, hard upbringing. You know, it's not their fault. No, Jesus says we're, we're entirely responsible. But Jesus appeals to the, to the Father on the basis of his own uh, sacrifice, his own mercy, what he has done for us. And it's only in him that we can have assurance. We'll come back to that theme. But let's move on uh, in, in Amos as we come to the blessing of uncomfortable truths, a confrontation with the word of truth that we see in the only narrative section in the whole, in the whole book. So it's trying to signify something quite important, uh, in particular, how, well, how dead the spiritual condition of Israel is. And you get the response of the hierarchy of Amaziah, the high priest of Bethel, because Amos has been likely going around, you know, telling um, the nation these, you know, these oracles, these prophecies, they've been hearing them, they've been hearing the message of what's coming. And so you can imagine from kind of government and religious headquarters, how they're feeling about Amos saying these things, these words that so often implicate them in it and saying, uh, they are responsible. Uh, not well. It, not well, it seems, because Amaziah, you can understand that he'd be pretty miffed about this uh, because it's highlighting his failure. But you would hope that he would listen, wouldn't you? You'd hope that he'd be the, you know, the priest, meant to be representing God to the people, the people to God. Um, you'd hope he'd be the one person who would actually listen to Amos. But not so. He says instead, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. Sorry, he sends this message to the king. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Now, Amaziah is kind of taking and twisting Amos's words. Can you see how he's doing that? And using it um, as a kind of a, Amos is making a political and seditious act. Uh, it's all about Amos's words and undermining the king's authority. You know, God doesn't come into the picture here. And so Amaziah then seeks to try and coerce Amos into silence, likely with backing from the king. And so as we see in verse 12 or so, he says, you know, go back down south, continue your prophet career there. We don't want you here. And you can almost... Uh, sense the indignation. Who is this upstart southerner to think that he can speak to me, the priest and the king in our place? Who does he think he is? Amaziah doesn't get it. And he is foolish because he doesn't want to hear the truth. He doesn't like what it says. Therefore, he doesn't want to, to hear it. And that is why he is foolish. Because God at many times challenges us 
with his words of truth. And sometimes when we're reading his word, we can have bits that maybe cause us discomfort or uh, they, we, that we, we find them challenging. They make us uncomfortable. We might not like them. And at that point, we have a choice, don't we? When you read something uncomfortable, you can, well, take action, respond to it, or you can just push it to the side. That's what Amaziah does. And that, I think is that is what we can be tempted to do at times and can do. But God's words are not sent lightly uh, because while Amos refuses, Am- Amaziah refuses to listen, uh, Amos must speak. And he doesn't back down, does he? I was neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet, he says, but a shepherd. And also I took care of sycamore trees. He's saying, I didn't inherit this gig. I wasn't trained for it but God gave me the call God gave me this message and he says go and do it and that's reason enough because people need to hear God's word is reason enough to speak because they come from God it's almost self-explanatory isn't it and he knows that he must speak it's too important to let go and unfortunately we we see um, it doesn't end well for Amaziah because he tried to stop Amos from proclaiming the word Uh, He is one of those who experiences the heavy reality of the judgment that comes upon Israel and his family experienced that. There is a blessing in uncomfortable words. You may have been alive for or may know about or have read about the uh, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Um, It comes up at times because of the whole uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict. But in 1986, there was a meltdown at the Chernobyl plant in the Soviet Union. Uh, it's a terrible, a terrible tragedy, but it was entirely avoidable. Uh, the KJB, so the Communist Intelligence Service, back in the 70s, so 15 years before the tragedy, they were already warning the authorities that there was huge problems in the design and the materials that were being used for it were substandard and that those operating the nuclear technicians were not following the proper safety procedures. Uh, An inspection only weeks before the disaster basically said, this plant is too dangerous to keep operating. It needs to be shut down. But I'm not sure exactly who was told that, probably various people over time, but the government officials, they didn't want to take action. They didn't want to look bad or they didn't want the inconvenience of having to, you know, wind this thing down. It was going to be expensive and time-consuming. But then, of course, there was the meltdown, wasn't there? Um, of which they now think uh, perhaps 5,000 5, people or so have died as exposure, as a result of exposure to the radiation and tens of thousands more um, have suffered health problems because of it. All because those who had the power to make a difference did not want to look bad. There is a blessing in uncomfortable truths to see things as they are and to respond rightly. We might read this these words in Amos and over the previous weeks and think these words are harsh, aren't they? At times they are harsh. They are hard words. They are severe. But there, I hope we would see there is a blessing and mercy in them. God is telling people of the danger that really exists. The most severe thing that God could do would be to be silent. And we see that is perhaps the most severe judgment that comes in chapter 8, verse 11. Amos speaks of a dreadful famine. 
not of water, not of food, but of God's word. They would be left with silence, his silence. And perhaps that is the most disastrous thing that they will experience. God's word, all of his words, the words of warning, rebuke, correction, all of those flow out of his love for us just as much as the words of encouragement and hope because they are there to prod us and poke us and and to get us to change and to run to him. So in this, I think there's a call to, to listen and a call to speak. Like, let's be clear, hearing God's word means heeding it and obeying. Amaziah heard it. He had no issue intellectually understanding it, but he pushed it to the side. He ignored it. We must not do that when it comes to the word of God. So don't ignore those moments where you find God's word inconvenient or maybe uncomfortable. I think that's the time where you really need to be listening and paying attention. Do not ignore what God says. But we're also called to speak as well, aren't we? Amos was given a message to proclaim. I mean, he would hardly seem qualified a shepherd, but he was given the message and he went and did it. And we too are given a message that is much better news, actually, than Amos, but it has a, heavy, a heaviness to it. Uh, we have the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and when we take that, you'll receive all kinds of responses to it. You might have someone who responds with love and faith and repentance. You might have someone who just ignores you and is indifferent, and you might have someone who really dislikes you because of it. But God calls us to speak. Now we have to discern the moments when to do that, um, but I, I think we should be looking and praying for those moments because they, they come up, I think, more often perhaps than we would like to think. And sometimes you've just got to go out there on a limb because this message, the gospel, is worth hearing, isn't it? So there is a judgment that comes, and it kind of all comes to a head in chapters 8 and 9. Uh, there's no way out for Israel. And we see another very ordinary but in context, a very disturbing image of a bowl of fruit. You wouldn't think that a bowl of fruit could pack a gut punch, but it does. Fruit is the symbol of harvest time, right? The the symbol of plenty, of reaping all that you've been working for. Well, it's time for Israel to reap. But the produce is not one to look forward to. The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. And you have described a very dark scene, poetically described. Um, it's, it's powerful, but in many ways, tragic and disturbing. I'll just read from verse 3. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple, so songs of praise, songs of prayer, they will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere silence. It's a grim scene and it's what will happen when Assyria does finally come upon the nation. And it's a picture of the wages of sin. The wages of sin are death. And verses 4 to 7 of chapter 8 then speak of how Israel, they continue to have this attitude of, you know, celebrating holy days. But really, they're just looking forward to going back and ripping people off once more. And God said it's in verse 7, I will never forget what they've done. See, one of the things we need to know about the, the day of God's judgment is that Israel is thinking, ah, it won't, you know, it won't come about. We'll be right. Or they'll, they'll think, well, God's not going to come and 
you know, God's not going to judge us for these things. But their attitude is short-sighted, isn't it? Because in this life, we, can't, we can convince ourselves, I think, that if nobody sees you know, my thoughts, or if I do something and I don't get caught, or if there aren't any immediate consequences, then, well, then I've got away with it. I think when we read Amos, um, I hope that would dispel any myth that that is possible when it comes to the Almighty. Because the Creator God rises, as we're told, against His own people to judge them. It's emphasizing his power, almost his apocalyptic might. The imagery is of the land being torn apart, of this kind of celestial bodies in the sky being hidden or seen at strange times. All of this is a warning to say, you won't get away with it. God sees and holds us to account and there will be judgment. And then chapter 9, we continue on and Amos sees God standing at the altar of Bethel, the heart of their worship, of Israel's worship. And God says, strike the pillars down. And the whole building just collapses. A symbol of the nation just coming down. And again, God says, no one will get away. None will escape from those he intends to judge. And on the day of judgment, not only will we get away with it from Will we get away with it? We, we can't get away with it. Sinners cannot get away from the Lord Almighty when he comes to judge them. It's a pretty grim picture, actually, in, in uh, 1 to 4. It's almost like the reverse of, uh, if you know Psalm 139, where David is taking comfort that no matter where he goes, the Lord is there and with him. Well, it's the opposite of that. The Lord is there, but he's pursuing his enemies. And that is a terrifying thing. To be God's enemy. And if this does anything, again, I hope it's, it's to, to awaken us and to prod us to take this life, this existence seriously. It really does matter how we act, how we live our lives. Sometimes we're told that life doesn't matter so much as long as we, you know, you do what you want. You know, you live for your pleasure or your own needs and, you know, find something that you love and it doesn't matter what, you know, as long as you love doing that. I think Amos tells us, no, our lives really are a serious thing because, you know, God is serious. Sometimes we can underplay who he is. I mean, often the media does. But he's not, you know, an old bearded man. He is the almighty creator and judge of all things to whom all people and all things will come before. And in many ways, this little mini apocalypse is a picture of the bigger one that comes with the return of the Lord Jesus. It's a heavy picture, and we should let that, we should, before we we feel the relief of what comes, we need to see the weight. But there is mercy, isn't there? Verse 8, Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, even while God will bring down the nation, a remnant, a faithful remnant will be saved. And it's another reminder in the scriptures that ethnicity and ancestry, even in the Old Testament, that's not what makes you on God's side. It was always been about faith, about those who are faithful to him. And it's a reminder that in any event, God can have multiple purposes, including judging his people, as well as pushing forward the story and plan of salvation. In many ways, Israel could not remain in this state 
it needed to be swept away. Um, and, and God would look after and save the remnant who had not abandoned him. Salvation, in fact, comes in a way through judgment. And that's the pattern of the cross, isn't it? The pattern of the cross is, is judgment that leads to salvation. Right? Yes. In the cross, sin is truly condemned as what it is. It is evil. Otherwise, why would Jesus be there? Jesus is there because sin is truly evil, truly reprehensible. And wrath is poured out. Judgment is inevitable. But of course, Christ is the one who bears that for us, out of his love for us. And to use the language of Amos, Israel, God's people are spared, right? This is us, because God's son was not spared. And I hope this just reminds us and brings us back to the great love that God has for us. Uh, I think some. When we think about how we respond and return to God, our sin is, as I've said, is, is reprehensible. But it's returning to God is not, I just feel really, really bad, and we kind of self-flagellate, and then God will forgive us. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying God wants us to run to him, to return to him. That was always the call to Israel, to turn back to him, and that is the call to us, to return to me. And that, that call of repentance is always to us, even in the Christian life, when we go astray. So we come to the end and we see the dawn that follows, the dark, the restored Israel, you know, light after darkness. And as I've said, is Amos, surprisingly, ends with hope, even after all the destruction. You think it would end with a scene of just despair and misery, but it ends with hope because God brings salvation. And it almost speaks to, it says in that day, which is a future indefinite time, it speaks to uh, almost an impossible reality, doesn't it? God says, I will restore David's fallen tent. Right, it's not even a house at this point, it's a tent. I will restore the fallen tent. I will rebuild the broken places and the cities. But as we look carefully at these, these uh, words, I think we see they are bigger than what kind of almost seems possible because restoring David's kingship would mean a restored kind of nation of Judah and Israel coming back together. Uh, but even beyond that, it speaks about Edom being brought back in. It speaks about any nation that bear the name of the Lord being brought back in. It's starting to speak about a, a rule of God uh, over the world and a rule in which people, it seems, are responding to him rightly. And not only this, we see blessing in this as well, it seems that sin is no longer present in this future kingdom, this future world. Um, the agricultural image of verse 13 and 14 is of just an overflowing, bountiful land. It's a picture that's actually impossible, like physically impossible, because the land we're told is so fruitful, right, that the farmers and the winemakers, they're so overloaded by the harvesting, they're still going when the time comes to plant again. It's just abundance, you know, beyond abundance. And the personal picture is that God brings his people back. Uh, kind of the final picture. And a picture of security, isn't he? He'll plant them again, rebuild them, and they will never again be uprooted. And historically speaking, Israel never returned in this way or to a picture like this. 
And Amos is, of course, I think, pointing to the future reality of what Jesus Christ has done. A reality that is both present and future. It's present because we can be in that kingdom. And it's interesting, the Apostle James in Acts 16, he sees that verse about the Lord's name going out and onto the nations as being fulfilled in the gospel going out. But we also know it is to come with Christ's return when all sin will be um, you know, washed away and cleansed and the world will be set right. So that is something we have to look forward to. God Almighty spares us through his son to the judgment to which we were entitled, but then he also provides us with a future that we didn't deserve at all. And that is the mercy and kindness of God that I hope shines out even amidst the, um, the heaviness and weight of Amos, the goodness of God in all times, that he would have mercy even to, even to sinners. And so the challenge of Amos is not to be complacent, but to be alert, to be living for God and the days that he's put before us as we await that final day. Uh, our response, really, our only hope in life and death is the Lord Jesus. You know, Amos and the scriptures, they tell us what's ahead. There is a judgment that has happened. It's happened in Christ. And there is a judgment that will come at the day of Christ's return. And where we stand on that, if we are with Jesus, right, who's taken that judgment, we do not have to fear. But if we are not with him, well, then it's an open question, isn't it? So we must stand with him. And of course, as I've said, looking forward, knowing the future, that helps us prepare for the present day, doesn't it? And so preparing for the day of the Lord's coming, it's not like preparing for a nuclear apocalypse where you get into your bunker um, and you have your rations and your Rubik's Cube to keep you occupied. No, it's to take God's words, the seriousness they deserve. And in some, in some ways, ironically... Living for God, um, you know, living for that day will actually look like in the world, will look like you're not living for the future. What I mean by that is that living as a believer, living as a Christian will involve sacrifice. It'll even involve people thinking, why are they doing that? Are they not sacrificing their financial future or their time? But that is how, you know, God has called us to live. So that's a reminder there that God really does sincerely care about how we live before him and a reminder of the wonderful hope and truth we have in Jesus who saves us from that day of wrath through what he has done for us. So I'm going to pray now um, that Amos's message would be, well, that it would be sitting with us and working in us in whatever way we need to hear it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, you share with us the truth through your word, the truths that we need to hear, whether we find them easy or difficult to hear. We thank you that we have the good news of the gospel, that we no longer have to fear sin and death because of the Lord Jesus, and we can have assurance of that in him. Please help us to know that assurance that we can have in him and to feel that, and to trust in that. But Lord, please also help us not to be complacent to not just not stray from you, to not ignore your word to us. Please help us when we might 
treat you with indifference or not take you seriously. Please help the reminders of Amos to see how big and how great you are and that you deserve, that you deserve everything. And so, Lord, as we seek to live for that final day, we pray that you would help us in the present by your spirit and that when we stray, we would run to your son. We pray all this in his name. Amen.